Hi, and welcome to One Great 150, a podcast series all about 150 years or so of Winnipeg history. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer Nick. Episode 13. Oh my god, we're so close to the end. (laughs) I am coming off of a three-episode stint in six weeks, and I'm just like, my brain's fried. Yeah. (laughs) Because I also work a day job. Yep. (laughs) Oh boy. It's been a lot of Winnipeg history rattling around my brain yeah. for the past six weeks. You happy that I have the next couple? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is your problem now. Oh, no. <laughs> but this is a fun one to finish on. I'm excited for this one. Yeah. Because today we're talking about another mayor. It's the first one we've talked about since Cornish. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's been a while. We're jumping back in years later. Yeah. I mean, we had some mayors come up, like in our foot well, episode. Yeah. But this is the first one we're going to focus on, and yeah. this would be a hard Winnipeg figure to ignore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about Mayor Stephen Juba, who was mayor from about 1957 to 1977. It's a long time. Is he, that our longest mayor? He served nine terms. Wow. He is our longest serving mayor. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about Winnipeg in the mid, mid to late century period, Juba's got to come up. Right. It would be insane to avoid this guy. Yeah. And uh, he's... Such a character. I'm excited for this one. <laughs> it's it's going to be interesting. I've had to whittle it down to like a handful of things because obviously over like a nine term career, Juba got up to a lot of stuff and a lot changed in the city. Yeah, I've been getting snippets of kind of insane anecdotes from you, which I assume are the ones that don't make it into the Yeah, exactly. Episode. I've been like, well, I can send these to Alex because I can't like it's not going to go in. Yeah. <laughs> I can't talk about the time you went off about soup in the newspaper. <laughs> Just a man with a lot of opinions. Sure. So we'll hear about some of his more significant ones, I yes, guess. Yes, exactly. Um, so Juba is pretty different than a lot of the mayors we've had before him. And when we're coming into like the 1950s, it's also a pretty different Winnipeg than we've seen in decades. Mm-hmm. It is post-World War II, and there's a huge economic boom. Right. So Winnipeg has money for the first time. Wow. In like, what, 30 years? You said that, and I almost didn't process it. I'm like, we have what? Money, yeah. <laughs> um, there's also, obviously, an increase in family sizes as the baby boom begins to kick off. Families mm. are moving to the suburbs. There's pretty rapid expansion in urban areas. There's more cars. Um, the concept of, like, teenagers is going to develop oh, relatively yeah. soon. Um, you're getting more of a focus on, like, isolated nuclear families. Mm-hmm. This, like, return to traditional po- pre-war values. Yeah. So, like, it's a busy time, and Winnipeg is growing, like, up in terms of business centers in the middle and growing out in terms of suburb development. So, mm-hmm. lots and lots of uh, change is happening. And we're financially stable, so we can afford some of this change. Nice. And into the sort of, like, period of growth and change, we get Juba. Okay. So, Juba is the son of Ukrainian immigrants who settle in the North End. Um, he drops out of school at 15 to support his family. Hmm. And he winds up just, like, working a series of odd jobs over the years. He yeah. starts uh, two businesses before he's 20. Doing Not, what? Doesn't matter? <laughs> well, yeah, because they don't really succeed. Okay. <laughs> They're um, Western Builders, uh, LTD, and SN Juba & Co. Okay. Western Builders is not uh, incorporated. Oh, it's just like, it's made up. He literally added LTD to the end of it to make it sound <laughs> official. Uh. And when we get into SN Juba & Co., um, he gave himself a fake middle initial. Steven Juba does not have a middle name. <laughs> That's so funny. He put that in there because it looked better. <laughs> nice. So <laughs> he um, he tries a couple of times with businesses that don't all pan out. Mm-hmm. And then he gets into uh, the Keystone Supply Company in 1945. It's a wholesale distribution company. They like buy stuff and then resell it, it sure. seems like. And this makes him a fortune. Oh, okay. So Juba becomes relatively wealthy. I feel like people always make fortunes off the most boring things. Right, yeah. <laughs> Sold paint. Yeah. Um, 
So hypothetically, Juba could have like become just a prominent business owner in the North End, but he's always been pretty interested in politics. At one point, he says he's been focused on it since like in the 30s. They made it so like he couldn't go to law school because the economic conditions were so bad. Oh, okay. Okay, right? Okay. Yeah. But uh, he starts trying to like run in elections, both municipal and provincial, and he loses um, a couple of times. <laughs> okay. But he does become an MLA. Mm-hmm. He is not affiliated with any political party, so he's an independent candidate. Oh, that's interesting. I don't feel like a lot of independent MLAs win. No, so he wins. Mm -hmm. And he's campaigning on stuff like mixed gender beverage rooms. Wow. I mean, pretty radical, Stephen. (laughs) But, like, our liquor laws in Manitoba are so outdated at this time that, like, women couldn't go into bars. Yeah, I mean, if people want to hear more about that, we've got the Prohibition episode. We went through the whole, like are many confusing liquor laws. Yeah. So like in the fifties, Juba is campaigning for like the loosening of those. Mm-hmm. But by this point, like when we get into the mid fifties, he's not a political newbie. He's been running campaigns and has been like provincially involved for a little bit. Um, he had tried running for mayor too. So he knows a little bit less than our incumbent mayor at the time. This is a, uh, George Sharp, who was coming into his second term, he'd been an alderman for years before that. Sharp's main claim to fame is he's the one that got rid of streetcars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so not a fan of that one from no. the sounds of it, no. I like streetcars. Yeah. So to people in Winnipeg, especially like the reporters and political columnists, Sharp's win seems kind of guaranteed. This is a man who has been on council for years. He's already the mayor. Okay. And then uh, it's a huge upset when, in November of 1956, Juba wins by, like, 2,000 votes. Hmm. Uh, He is our first non-Anglo-Saxon mayor. Wow. He's the first one from the North End. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's a pretty big deal. He's very different than all of the mayors we've had before, who have been largely Anglo-Saxon business owners from sort of the south side of Winnipeg. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. 55.4% 55.4% of Winnipeg's voters turned out for this election. Okay. Is that good or bad? I uh, Compared to today's standards, shockingly good. Okay. <laughs> oh, I God. think we get somewhere between 20 to 25. Oh, that's so bad. Okay, everyone, please vote. Especially in your local elections. Yeah. They matter more than you'd think. Yeah. So, yeah, Juba wins by, like, a huge landslide. And it is a huge shock to all of the reporters and business owners who were like, well, it's going to be Sharp, the guy we know already. Right. I feel like even, like there's this sort of like group of guys who kind of date back to like the citizens league who have kind of been running the city for the past like 40 years. Exactly. Yeah. So this is the first one that's not coming from that earlier era. That's like shaking it up in the grand scheme of things. Juba's wealth is relatively new Mm -hmm. too. So it's not like he made his money off of like land speculation or the railroad. (laughs) Yeah. So people can't really figure him out. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help that Juba seems surprised that he won. He had (laughs) spent Apparently a couple hundred dollars on campaigning. He'd done a few debates with Sharp that had mostly been them yelling at each other. Yeah. Um, and then Juba had also bet a thousand dollars against himself running and winning. What? <laughs> so he wins and he has to pay out a thousand dollars and he gives it all to charity. Okay. But it's given to the Press Radio Orphan Scholarship Fund. Okay. So like Juba doesn't even need... I mean, actually, he might have thought he would win, that it would be, like, a goodwill gesture. Yeah. Or it would look charming. Yeah. Regardless, um, people cannot figure him out. There are so many articles in the Winnipeg Tribune especially being like, what is this guy's deal? Right. We cannot puzzle him out. <laughs> <laughs> um, by 56, when he wins, he's had some pretty popular stances. Obviously, the um, liquor laws. 
Um, he's been talking about road improvements and getting a national flag for the country because okay. we're still using a Union Jack. Oh, right. We don't have the maple leaf yet. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, his main campaign for mayor was to try and get more tax revenue from the province, arguing that Winnipeg is obviously the main source of income, and accordingly, the province should give back to it, which is still something we hear about today. I feel like that's what every mayor would like, and of yeah. course, that makes sense. But uh, Here are some of his other stances, though. Um, he wanted a Mardi, Mardi Gras-type tourist attraction for the city, um, election and council reform, the elimination of party politics and civic administration. Oh, interesting. Because if you remember our Jacob Penner episode, a lot of politicians then were tied to provincial and federal like parties. the Labor Party or the, yeah. Conservatives, the Liberals. Yeah. yeah. So he wants to remove that in council. Um, Juba has always been a pretty staunch independent. He'll, throughout his career, never ally himself with any political party. Hmm. Um, he also wants more um, MLAs briefed on municipal issues. Okay. So talking to your provincial reps about stuff going on in your neighborhood. Um, more rigid budget control and transparency, um, the establishment of beef sessions <laughs> where citizens could air their grievances to mayor and council. Okay. Which is also every council meeting, if you've that ever been actually, to one. that's true. <laughs> yeah, how is this different from a normal council session? Who's to say? Yeah. Um, permanent flood protection in the city with government collaboration. Good idea. That might sound like Duff Stitch. Yep. <laughs> and that's what comes out of it. And then uh, promoting more use of Winnipeg's rivers. Okay. Like, uh, as kind of tourism? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Do you, like, when I was younger, there used to be, like, the paddle wheel queen or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That would, yeah. Yeah, I there's a lull. Lo- defunct now. I don't know. It is, yeah. So there was kind of a lull. Obviously, if we talk about, like, Winnipeg in the 1880s and before, boats are huge. They're a main way of getting things anywhere before the railway. Mm-hmm. That kind of peters out when we have cars and trains. We give up a lot of things when we get cars, don't we? We do. It really seems like. And then we briefly get back boats after this, like, push for river tourism. Mm-hmm. But that also peters out again. Yeah. But it would be fun to get boats back. I tried to take the water taxi earlier this summer, and they were like, you want to do what? We don't do that. <laughs> like, I used to take it to work sometimes. If I was like, I can, like, I left early. I'm going to go and, like, walk on down to the river. Yeah. I don't know if maybe they stopped doing it during COVID or something. Interesting. Just, but I, Yeah. <laughs> They did not seem like that is still a thing they do. Interesting. Maybe it was just, maybe it just only runs at different times. I maybe. don't know. <laughs> um, can I, can we stop for one second on the Mardi Gras thing? Yeah. Yeah. What? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think. I just would love to know what's like Mardi Gras, you know? <laughs> I mean, I assume what he's conceptualing is like a festival. I think he's imagining a big festival okay. that will bring out tourists. Okay. That's a thing we could do, yeah. And we'll actually see this come up a couple of times over the episode. Yeah. Like, this does sort of come to fruition. It's maybe not, like, Mardi Gras. Sure. But I don't think we could have Mardi Gras. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, basically what he wants... It's boosterism stuff, right? Sure. We're going back to, like, if we think about... Was it Seymour Farmer? Was that the mayor? It was the guy that... after Farmer, whose name I've already forgotten. Oh, my God. <laughs> was it Gray? No. No. Okay. Gray was the mayor during the strike. Yeah. Um... Nope, it's gone. <laughs> That's Sorry. okay. But, like, there was a time, too, when, like, we were happy to not have, like, a boosterism mayor. Mm-hmm. And we kind of pivoted back around to, like, we actually need this guy. Yeah. And people seem to really like his ideas. He's very popular with the voters, not so much with, like, politicians and the press, necessarily. Hmm. Um, He's the people's mayor. Apparently. Um, Sharp will say that some of these things were already underway after Juba unveils all this stuff, but then Sharp doesn't actually have a firm platform, really. Hmm. His platform is, I was here already, it seems like. Yeah. Which is actually not a bad one. (laughs) No, I mean, most of the time that works. Yeah. But it doesn't this time. Yeah. He loses, and then in the aftermath, Juba is asked how he'll, like, do as mayor, and he says, I might make a lot of mistakes, but 
I'll give you lots to write about. <laughs> Is this foreshadowing? Yes. Um, in 1977, there's this big, like, review of his term as mayor, and a reporter calls this a um, vintage Juba strategy, which is to be jealously protective of the city's reputation, pick an easily identifiable issue, attack a single recognizable enemy, use an outlandish gimmick that will attract the attention of photographers, and then raise an outrageous ruckus that will command headlines. Okay. Juba is a mayor that loves stunts. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. So some of the things that he does or suggests that kind of implies... He may not genuinely be like, we're actually going to do this. Yeah, it seems like he's saying stuff to get attention. Sure. And then if you talk, there's some interviews where I'll say, like, it might seem like I'm not thinking, but there's normally, like, a plan. Yeah. <laughs> and then you read them and you're like, were you thinking? <laughs> and we'll talk about some of these. Um, internally, he's also not well received. At a uh, tax meeting in November of 1956. So Juba's not the mayor yet. That will, like, he'll be sworn in in january of 1957 but he wants to go to a tax meeting to like see what's going on okay um he is denied entry oh and when the press ask why winnipeg's aldermen direct them to mayor sharp who refuses to comment and wow. then aldermen start fighting back and forth mm -hmm. saying like we never voted and the one person's like we did vote to ban him but you can't say it was me <laughs> so like there's all of this infighting about juba already and yeah. a lot of people seem unwilling to like let him into council I mean, because they're going to have to eventually. You're going to have to eventually. And also, apparently, Juba just sat outside in the hallway the entire meeting. Oh, no. Oh. This wasn't out of sadness. This was out of spite, to be if clear. If it were me, it would be out of sadness. sadness. You're crying. I'm like, but let me in. Yeah, so there's so many funny articles where the Tribune tries to be like, who are you, Stephen Juba? And he goes, I'm just a regular fella. Yeah. That seemed... <laughs> But he's also such a natural fit for the Tribune in this way, because the Tribune also, like, loves a character. That's right. I mean, the Tribune's kind of, like, favorite form of journalism is following around a weird guy. And, and just seeing what happens. Seeing what he's up to. Exactly. Um, and despite him being so, like, publicly showy with all of his gimmicks and stunts and his, like, quotes to the press, he's very private politically in, like, City Hall. Hmm. He installs an electric lock on his door. He locks his files away. When he finds out people have been listening from a meeting room, he actually locks access to that, too. Hmm. He is pretty private throughout his entire career. He doesn't tend to let, like, anyone in council know what's going on until they have to know. Okay. Which does not make him friends. No. No, I can see how that would be frustrating. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's sort of Juba. That's how he comes into things. Mm -hmm. A little confusing. Inexplicably popular. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we'll trim it down to a couple of things that he accomplished over his very long term as mayor. Yeah. Um, so the one thing we're going to talk about a lot over the course of the episode is that Winnipeg by the mid-1950s is huge. Because mm -hmm. we're not talking about just like that little town north of the Forks by what's Portage and Maine today. We're now talking about a pretty big city in the center surrounded by like 13 different municipalities like the like greater winnipeg area, area exactly yeah so this would include like transcona saint boniface saint fatel uh east kildonan mm -hmm. they're all separate towns but like winnipeg in those towns are kind of functionally the same that they're sharing a lot of the same services mm -hmm. but because they're all separately managed there's a lot of disorganization involved in like how things are run yeah so when it comes to, like, accessing emergency services, things are very confusing. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. So um, we don't get a three-digit emergency number until 1959. Hmm. Before that, you would have to know who you were trying to talk to. So fire department, ambulance, police. 
you would have to know that number for your area mm-hmm. and then call them. And presumably not call, like, the East Kildonan one when you're actually in, like, Transcona or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And these departments aren't talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So if you call, if you accidentally call the St. Boniface one and you're in Kildonan, they can't communicate. Right. There's not a shared, like, radio frequency between emergency departments and different municipalities. I feel like... For any, like, true crime fans out there, this is how every, like, serial killer gets away with it for, like, 30 years, because... It's di- different, like, jurisdictions. Yeah, no one's yeah. talking to each other. So, you could go to the phone book and find it. Um, There are 32 different service station numbers to know in uh-oh, Winnipeg. Uh-oh, Isn't that so many? That's wild. And then, like, if you move from, like, one town to another... You have to memorize the new numbers. Exactly. Yeah. And also, if you're in, like, a crisis, how are you going to do that? Yeah. They might have still had some, like, call boxes set up on the street you can run you can, like, call from there. And mm-hmm. that would hook you up directly. But that's not going to help if you're in a home in the suburbs. Sure. So, um, in September of 1958, Stephen Juba and Alderman uh, Albert Bennett proposed a new system, a shared radio wavelength for emergency responders, in the introduction of an emergency phone number that will direct people to the correct service. Cool. Yeah. Um, they convinced Winnipeg's surrounding municipalities um, to pay for it. So, this is the Winnipeg, our greater Winnipeg area. And on June 21st, 1959, Winnipeg becomes the first city in North America to have a three-digit emergency system. Awesome. It's a 999 mm-hmm. at the time. It's not 911 yet, but it doesn't happen until the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, London had one before this, but this is, like, pretty, like, radical technology. Right. And it's one of those things that you're like, it's so obvious. How did how did no one think of this before? But, right, like, yeah. it's it's such a, a clearly good idea. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, um... When it opens, there is a switchboard staffed by eight operators. Um, within the first several hours, all of the calls are like, hey, is this thing working? <laughs> There's apparently no emergencies. Yeah, this is for emergencies, sir. <laughs> we are working, but can you hang up now just in case? Yeah. So the operators would work in shifts of two, and they tried to make sure at least one operator spoke French. Oh, smart. And they'd apparently talked about having like other bilingual officers speaking like Ukrainian and Hungarian and stuff on mm-hmm. staff just in case. Yeah. I don't know where that went. Um. But after this, there are a lot of ads. So if you look at the top of the free press around this time, in the corner of every front page is a note saying, Winnipeg's new 999. Please call for emergencies only. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they do record their calls. Oh, interesting. I guess this is when they first have to start telling people that there is also a non-emergency police number. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um, One of the calls they get is from a little boy. Aww. Who says, there's a mouse in the house. Aww. We need a mouse trap. He's two inches tall and three inches long and he's got a mustache. <laughs> he's a sick mouse, I'm telling you. He eats cabbage and strudel every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I have no, I don't know how they help the kid. There's like, we, like you're on your own, bud. Yeah. I good mean, luck. This, I feel like this still happens that kids will accidentally call 911. Yeah. But... Um, Usually not about a mouse who's eating strudel. That's very cute. He's a sick mouse. <laughs> like, okay, I want to know if that means he's ill or he's he like this like perverted mouse. <laughs> this mouse is no good. Yeah. <laughs> he's a threat to the home. Eating all our cabbage. <laughs> and our strudel. <laughs> so in December of 1959, Winnipeggers get their first look inside the facility because CBC uh, comes out to film it. Ah. They do a whole segment called Eye to Eye where they go around and they film like debates and stuff. I'll show you the first little bit, and we'll watch the full thing for the bonus episode, because I actually play some of the emergency calls they're getting. Oh, fun. But uh, unless, Wait, unless they're terrible. Well, some of them are sad, okay. but some of them are like, my kid's arm is stuck in the wash bin. You can hear the kid going, mom! 
mom. <laughs> All right. What's fun about the video is the guy that's giving the tour works there and is clearly not totally sure about how to be on camera. <laughs> so we're, we'll watch the rest of that for the bonus yeah, episode. Because yeah. you can hear some of the calls. Yeah. Which is very interesting. But yeah, that is our first emergency sy- electrodid emergency system. That's really neat. I mean, g- like, great first job. Yeah, right. And what a. It's not his only big thing he's campaigning on. That's one of his ideas is actually good. Yeah. <laughs> but. So um, far, I'm on it. So far, right? I'm on Juba's side. Good job. He's do. So far, so good. Yeah. That's actually helpful for the city. Um, what's also going on is that uh, we're starting to redevelop mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, what's coming out of this economic boom in the 1950s is a lot of new builds, mm-hmm. specifically like new office towers. So we are building suburbs outside of the city for people to live in. So housing tends to be either leaving the area by choice or by force, right. as the case may be. So downtown's developing more as like a business and commerce hub. So they are buying out people's properties and building huge office towers. This Mm -hmm. is typically displacing poor people throughout the city. They're often, um, not often, but periodically they'll like say the quiet thing out loud loud and be like, we're getting the slums by building a new tower. Like, I feel like people will still say things like this. Yeah. And I just want to know where they think poor people are going to live if they get rid of their home. Right? Yeah. This is always the big question, right? Like, do you have a new home for them, or are you just kicking them out? Right. And it's not totally clear if there's ever a plan for this, but what's going on in Winnipeg is not exceptional to Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the old buildings that we have, especially the public ones, aren't viewed especially fondly in the 1950s. Um, A lot of them haven't been maintained due to, like, economic ups and downs over the past, like, 30 years. Right. I mean, like, I feel like the prime example of this, which is probably one that you're going to talk about, is City Hall. We're getting there. Okay. So, yeah, Winnipeg is also trying to establish itself again as, like, a world player. Mm -hmm. So it needs more, like, worldly buildings. Um, We'll talk in another episode down the road about, like, Roostertown, but Roostertown comes out of this push to, like, redevelop and modernize Hmm. and to build, like, suburban malls. Right. Should uh, we say super quickly, like, what what that is? Yeah, do you want to? So yeah. essentially that there was a um, Métis, I get a settlement or a community yeah. that lived there who were kicked out so that we could build Grand Park Mall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's not all flawless in how it plays out. Um, it's, it's an interesting era to talk about in the city where we're trying to, like, change so much of what we had. Right? Like, we don't want, we're not attached to that past identity yeah, in a lot of ways. It's, it's interesting, because I think from the point of view now, you'd be like, I can't believe they tore down that, like, beautiful building from the 1880s right, yeah, to exactly. build whatever. But then, like, that building from the 1880s wasn't as old back then. Yeah. And they maybe also had to deal with the practical considerations of those buildings. Yeah. In a way that we don't when we're just looking at pictures of them. Yeah, exactly. Um... But for, like, Winnipeg's wealthier players, there's a lot of excitement going on Mm -hmm. in what, like, could be done in Winnipeg and what could be done to downtown. And it leads to a, like, modernist period, which gives us some kind of interesting new buildings. Mm -hmm. And to help talk with, uh, about this, I talked with uh, the ladies from Made From What's Left. They are another Winnipeg podcast. They do some history, some, like, food reviews. They really cover the gamut of whatever they find interesting in the city. Cool. But they have done an episode on brutalism in Winnipeg and on our, some of our mayors, including Juba and City Hall. Neat. So you should check them out. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves here. I wanted to do something. Roy and I have been friends for a long time. And um, when we're together, we always laugh like fools. And um, I wanted to do something. Uh, I wanted to do something promotional for my architectural practice, but 
Um, nobody reads architecture blogs because that's boring. And and anybody who does read an architecture blog is probably also an architect. And that's not really who I'm targeting as clients. So I thought, what would be something more fun? And I pitched the idea to Roy as let's do like super, super short, like five, 10 minute episodes about cool things in Winnipeg. And I mean, Roy was like, I'm in. I mean, can I, can can I quote you? And yeah, that's exactly what she said. Could it also be about food? So we kind of mashed her interests and mine. So her background, I don't know, I should speak for you. But of course, mine's in, in on the architecture side, Roy's on the food side. Although um, I do have a passion for food and Roy has a passion for good design. And so uh, we kind of mash those together. And, um, and then we've just been... I don't know. I think in the beginning we were just kind of winging it, talking about topics that we liked, and then, um, well, we're still winging it. <laughs> I was going to say nothing's changed. <laughs> so part of the reason I wanted to talk to them is that modernism is a really divisive style. Do you like modernist architecture? I do actually. Okay. Yeah. Nick, what do like, you think? Like quite a lot. Okay. Well, yeah, you would. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I'm. A, I'm a fan. Well, yeah, you love the clinic building. Yeah, yeah, the Winnipeg uh, one with the, it looks like discs. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. Jetson building. The... Yeah, that building's like my favorite. Yeah, so we have fans <laughs> in I studio. I don't know that I, I don't know a lot about architecture, I'll say that. Like, I don't know that if you asked me like, oh, is this a modernist building or is this a modernist building? I could be like, oh, it's this one. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know a lot about art, but I know what I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're not going to get too into the specifics here because I'm also not like an architect. Mm-hmm. Um, and modernism can fall into a lot of like pretty broad, it's a pretty broad category because you'll get stuff like brutalism, yeah, uh, internationalism, like the international style. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of like variations and specifics for each style, but we're just going to broadly call it modernist. Okay. But we're referring to buildings that come out of the like mid-century period, right. typically. So like what are some like local examples that you would give of modernist buildings? Well, I'll let um, Paige and Rebecca explain what it is because okay. they talked about some of the characteristics because Paige is an architect. Ah. <laughs> So she actually knows a bit more than us. And then you can guess what you think some modernist buildings are. It's interesting because it's it's sort of all the things I, I have come to love. Um, the uh, one, of, one of the most, uh, I guess, uh, visible characteristics is the honesty of structure. So um, a lot of these buildings are uh, supported by the concrete that you see on the exterior of the building. Some of them are clad, and that's actually where they start to step away from brutalism and more into that uh, late modernism. But they um, they have this um, this honesty or a sincerity of structure. So when you look at, uh, the, well, I I apologize to the gingerbread city hall. I mean, we had that building for almost eighty years, right? So it did it did its job. But um, when you look at a building like that, you don't you don't there's not there's no intuition about how uh the building is supporting itself and how the loads are carried all the way from the roof right through to the foundation and um so i think that that's what um those brutalist uh referenced buildings do well is that they just sit heavily on their foundation we can see exactly how it's being held up and you know the 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 mass of it is very prominent um, so that is, uh, and then obviously we talked about the concrete, there's the glass and the steel and the wood that is, um, but 
it's also in the way that those things are used because because of course concrete was around for a long time it just wasn't used that way until um until this period so i would say you know the either long linear forms or um this idea of you know we think of brutalism as having these hulking big forms but then we also start to see them float which is part of why we did that whole episode on floating architecture because it's it's like using architectural um, element or architectural techniques to make a, a really heavy thing look like it's floating. So um, through the use of glass and just pu pushing and pulling the facades in certain ways. So I think those are some of the most, or those are some of the elements that come to mind for me. That's super interesting, right? Yeah. So like, if I think about like sort of you know, hulking buildings is sort of the style, you know, I think about like something like the Centennial Center. Yeah. Right? Like, so so that's the concert hall in the Manitoba mm -hmm. Museum. Um, and then when she's talking about like kind of long linear lines, maybe that might have been too many, that might have been <laughs> redundant by yeah. the way I said that, I don't know. But um, I kind of think about, this isn't here, but the City Hall in Toronto. Oh yeah, right. This this with these big kind of like interlocking flowing structures. Yeah. yeah. So I guess those would be the ones that I would think of. What are some other yeah. examples? Um, a lot of Broadway. Yeah, we don't tend to think of them because they're like they're not public buildings the way like mm. the concert hall would be. Like we're not going to like the old IBM building on Broadway for kicks. That's true. <laughs> but a lot of Broadway is modernist construction from around oh. this time because they're trying to turn what was a residential neighborhood. Yeah. Into an industry hub. They want to make broadway this like big tech hub and like ibm is there in the very early days oh, so we are kind of a tech hub early on hmm. so it works yeah so yeah it's a pretty like distinctive style and part of it does seem to come from like trying out new things so i also asked why they thought this style like took off the mm -hmm. way it did because people uh have some bigger opinions on it now sure <laughs> so okay here was their theory on why it is more popular. I've not read this, so I'm absolutely making this up, but I think that a lot of it had to do with uh, the reconstruction of um, civic projects that would have, uh, that would, that would be impressive. Civic projects that would, um, you know, uh, really take over a street and, or take over a space with huge plazas and um, really make a statement. So I, I think that there's something in that. So it was a very different time. And that's exactly, I think, that sort of optimism about the future that you're talking about. And and the concrete, the concrete mm -hmm. used to build these buildings. Concrete was thought of as being futuristic, right? <laughs> and like, what can we, because cause we, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's both solid, but it's fluid and it's, you know, it's got all these possibilities and they were doing all kinds of crazy things with concrete and uh, it's the wave of the future. And these, the, the, the style was a pull away from that gingerbread city hall, that, that nostalgia for ornamentation that was just way over the top. Right. So mm -hmm. People were just, people were ready for a new thing, I think. Or maybe they weren't. I, I, <laughs> it's divisive. <laughs> so the one thing I was going to say is like this pull from nostalgia, I think is a big thing. If we talk about architecture in Winnipeg in the early 20th century, mm -hmm. what we have are a lot of what we call like revival styles. Yeah. Like neoclassical revival, Gothic revival. They are all pulling from styles in Europe and in England. They are tied to like a certain past. Yeah. 
And what's kind of interesting about modernism is that they're not pulling from that as much. They're not taking yeah. elements from, like, classical architecture. So you're not going to see, like, Greek columns because they're not pulling from that. Right. I, I wonder if, you know, sometimes when there's, like, a pushback against nostalgia, I wonder if that has to do with, like, the wars, for instance. Yeah. That we're coming out of. I mean, you know, we're, we're a little bit removed now of World War II, but we've maybe got a younger generation now saying our parents' generation caused these terrible world wars we want to build a new different kind of society and maybe it will look physically different as well yeah no i think that's a big part of it right is they're trying to i mean like change the way the world looks essentially yeah. right and i could see even like i mean we'll talk a little bit about too who was involved but yeah it does seem to be a push away from the past which like for the past 40 years has been pretty consistently bad yeah <laughs> two world wars the depression like it's not been a good time there's been a lot of hardship and I can see wanting to come out of that and make something new. Yeah, make something new. And I think one thing she said there that was really interesting, too, was that you can just physically do different things with concrete that you can't do with a brick or, like, um, wooden building. Totally. And this is only a new recent development. They've only started, like, playing with concrete that way in the past, mm. like, 20 to 30 years because of technical innovations during the war period. Right. It's, it's so interesting because I think the reason I enjoy modernism is because it's nostalgic. Right. <laughs> right. But in this sort of like, you know, this sort of retro futuristic yeah. way. But yeah. That's interesting because I also asked Paige and Rebecca why they liked it. Yeah. Because I thought it would be good to have people on to talk about why they do. Because I used to do tours downtown and I heard a lot about people why they don't. I mean, people hated the public safety building. I liked the public safety okay. building. Okay. <laughs> the reason I liked it, though, is that like... I would agree that it's maybe not, like, useful for anything other than what it was. Yeah. And the lighting would have been bad. But I think the structure was sound and the material was cool enough that if they'd wanted to do, like, an adaptive reuse project and spend the money, it could have been something really, really interesting. I, I also think they should have done that, but, yeah. And wasn't there something with the public safety building not being able to just exist in Winnipeg? Because, like, there were certain parts of it that jutted out that didn't do well in the winter? Yeah, the, the structure was starting to fall a little bit. So, like, pieces yeah. were crumbling off, but you could have removed the cladding. Yeah, that was a gorgeous building. I always loved it. It was just like, it just looked so like thick. Yeah, it, yeah, and, and hard and beautiful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I liked it a lot too. Yeah, and it really like it went with the concert hall. Like the concert hall That's is true. also they're sort, of, like, they're sort of a matching set, right? Of city yeah. hall, the concert hall, and the public safety. We're gonna building. talk about why that is. Oh, okay. Oh, awesome. Okay, yeah. so I'm not wrong. No, you're totally right. Yeah, no, because <laughs> they were saying in that too that like there's this sort of movement towards like um, uh, civic projects. Yeah. Right? big like civic centers and plazas mm -hmm. okay so i'll let them talk about why they liked it because it's going to touch on some of this stuff too okay and then we'll get into uh more specifics of city hall do you want to start roy <laughs> well personally i love them i mean i love that whole mid-century vibe everything about it i mean you look back at you know, watching jetsons as a kid yeah and being like this is the ideal another <laughs> <laughs> idea um I know that I've talked to a lot of visitors to Winnipeg who have commented on structures like the city hall and the concert hall and um, specifically the art gallery, saying, why would you have such cold, stark buildings in such a cold, stark landscape? And then I think, well, Winnipeg isn't really that cold and stark. <laughs> <laughs> we have this great tree canopy. You know, we have, you know, summer for two or three months out of the year. <laughs> absolutely true you know and then we you know we have the warmth of of the people and and the the very colorful culture that we have here i think um so they, they've never stood out to me as you know sticking out 
of the landscape. Um, but, you know, it kind of goes back to that when, when was this prosperity in Winnipeg or when did they have all these great ideas? It kind of makes me excited for the city, even though it was, you know, back in Stephen Juba's time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have, I, I have nothing but FOMO for uh, the work that the architects in Winnipeg were doing at that time. Um, mm -hmm. They were, you know, big, big firms in the city creating that consortium that did all of the projects, all of the, the, the most notable projects we're talking about. Um, and so like true collaboration, which you, you do see on, on mega projects, you just don't see it on smaller projects today. Um, or, or sometimes you do, but um, it, it, it's kind of neat. And it's also kind of neat that most of these buildings were designed by University of Manitoba grads. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, that just makes it, it makes it more Winnipeg in a sense. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think some of the, um, I think some of the most, you know, I, I mentioned sort of that honesty and I like I like the honesty of structure in a brutalist building or in a in you know these late modern structures but um one of the things that I think is the most compelling about them is the way they play with light and shadow so uh and city hall is a good example of that because of the that sort of double skin mm -hmm. um cast shadows on the uh on the inner sort of the walkway and and then on the building itself so I think that makes that gives a project depth that uh, that we don't see in other types of architecture. So I can't believe I didn't think of the art gallery, first of all. <laughs> right? Um, but if I can do a little bit of, like, collections nerdiness here. Yeah. So she talked about how, like, modernist buildings play with, um, with light and shadow. And the art gallery is a really cool example of that. Because an art gallery needs to be mostly in shadow to preserve the works that are mm -hmm. inside of it. But I don't think if you go inside the Winnipeg Art Gallery, it doesn't feel dark in there. No, it doesn't. But they've got that, like, big hulking skylight in the middle. Yeah. So, you know, you can put certain works in there. And then you can have these kind of, like, hallways going off where you have more controlled lighting. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really neat thing that they were able to do with the architecture there yeah. to make it sort of functional as well. Yeah. As well as being impressive. Yeah. So they talked a bit about the Art Gallery in their episode on, like, brutalism and modernism. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. But... We're going to go back a little bit because the art gallery comes around in 71. So we're jumping a bit ahead. But, like, obviously there's a lot of, like, big ideas coming out. And the architects working on this stuff are all young grads. Mm -hmm. They're mostly from the University of Manitoba. And they're coming out with, like, big, hot, new ideas. And Winnipeg City Hall doesn't look like a new idea. Right. The city hall that Juba is working out of for the first little for the first bit of his term is the old gingerbread city hall. Yeah. Which we talked about in a earlier set on the construction scandal that surrounded it in the 1880s. Yeah. Um, when we get to the 1950s, the gingerbread city hall is not what it used to be. Its style is uh, confusing mm -hmm. at best. Um, it's a mishmash of styles kind of thrown together. Um, someone in a free press article called it like an encyclopedia of the world because that was the style of the time. They're like taking elements of everything and slapping it on one building. Mm -hmm. It looks a little different when you're like, oh, there's like there's too much happening on this. Yeah, I don't think there is. I would agree it's gaudy, but I like that it is. I do too. I, I was just about to say that I should clarify that I like that old city yeah. hall because um, I think people are going to be sad that if we're just like, yeah. no, no, we that both it sucked, like it. But no, we both like it, but it just couldn't be there anymore. Yeah. 
And the one thing I will say throughout the episode, like, the conservation standards we have today for, like, mm-hmm. heritage preservation come out of this period. Hmm. We get Heritage Winnipeg in 1974 in response to all the old buildings that are being torn down. Oh, sort of as a correction. We're like, oh, maybe we don't want to tear all, all of them, them down. down. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk a bit about that, too. But, like, in my day-to-day life, I'm a lot more for, like, adaptive reuse of old mm-hmm. buildings for, like, environmental reasons. And yeah. I think it allows you to create really interesting new spaces, like the uh, James Street Pumping Station restaurant, which is so cool. I'm a, Yeah, I'm a little annoyed about some of the stuff they did with well, <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? Like, it's still something. But I, but I still like that they reused yeah. it, and I'm really or happy like about art that. space is a really good example of adaptive reuse. Yeah. Art space was an old warehouse, mm-hmm. and now it's like a hub of galleries and an old movie theater, and it's cool. Yeah, but I'm not gonna get mad at things that happened 60 years ago for attitudes they had at the time towards old buildings. Yeah, so we're not gonna beleaguer the point too much and like, ah, oh, what a shame they tore down this nice old thing. Yeah, they tore them down. <laughs> They've had their reasons for doing so. And in the case of City Hall, it's that people don't think it's architecturally interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also small. Remember, we have like a whole greater Winnipeg area now. Mm-hmm. And we are working out of a city hall that was meant to fit a city of 2,000, if not a little more. That's right. So like we've grown, the administration of the city has completely grown out of this building. And the city hasn't been paying to maintain it. Because they can't afford to. They're trying to, like, pay for all kinds of... They couldn't pay to build it. Mm-hmm. So the city only paid off City Hall in the 1940s. They'd, <laughs> That's wild. Um, <laughs> oh, man. And they'd been trying to replace it since 1914. Yeah. They'd had a design contest to get a new one. World War One happened, and that stalled out. So they've been trying for ages to get a new one. And then Juba comes into office, and he is clear that he has no fondness for City Hall or the market building behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the market building, he says, and you'll pardon me swearing on the podcast, I don't want any fucking chicken farmers near where I work. <laughs> so the market building becomes the civic administration office. That's okay. I mean, I have to say I laughed at that, but just to be clear, I'm in favor of the chicken farmers. That's not yeah. <laughs> that's just me laughing at the comment. Because <laughs> I feel like we'd get emails. Yeah. It's just a funny thing to say. Yeah. Um, But because Juba's a sort of showman by nature, what he does to talk about how much he dislikes City Hall is he'll do tours where he goes through City Hall and he'll shake the rafters to show how the tower is shaking. Wow. And (laughs) now I'm shaking the mic. (laughs) Um, The tower is removed by 1961 for structural concerns. And then he starts informing people there is a thing on the roof that cannot be removed. I have talked about this with both you and Nick. Do you guys remember what it is? Is, um, I think I know what it is. Yeah, what is it? Wait, is this the dead goat? Yes! <laughs> there are the bones of a dead goat on the roof of City Hall. Uh-huh. And Juba has been pointing them out to reporters saying they are up here and we can't get them down because no one can get on the roof. Because it's, like, not safe to go yeah. on the roof. <laughs> and at one point, probably five years ago, I did track this goat thing down. Okay. Kind of. Because I've been hearing this as sort of an apocryphal yeah. thing for forever. So there is a picture. There's okay. a photo of a goat on the roof. So we know it was there when Juba was doing tours. There is an article in an Ontario newspaper mm-hmm. that refers to it as early as the 1930s. Where, <laughs> no. it, where it's presenting it as a joke played by, I believe, the U of M's agriculture department. Okay, so they like had a goat that died. Presumably, yeah. it was already. Or dead. they had goat bones for some reason. Whatever, and they thought it would be funny to put it on the roof, and didn't realize it will be there for thirty years. Or maybe they knew that and thought that would be even funnier. You know what? They were right. Yeah. So yeah, there are these goat bones on the roof of City Hall that mm-hmm. have been there maybe for thirty years. <laughs> That's incredible. 
So, like, Jubal wants it gone. He's making a pretty good case for it. And the public wants it gone. Can I just say briefly, I love the idea of this, like, anti-tour. Where yeah. you just go around. Saying things you hate. <laughs> saying things you hate. Yeah. It's a great idea. I mean, it was effective. Should do that for, like, doors open one year. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. Here are the worst buildings. <laughs> um... The Winnipeg Architecture Foundation was doing tours of surface parking lots. Oh, okay. That's basically <laughs> the, the same. same I love it. Yeah. Um, so there is actually a plebiscite held about City Hall. 70% of the voters want it gone. Okay. So there is a design contest held. Um, uh, Green Blankstein and Russell, when they're a Winnipeg firm, one of the judges of the contest was actually mentioned in our last episode. Uh, John Russell, the architect that worked with the ballet. Oh, cool. So he's kicking around for these civic projects. Um, it is one of the largest architecture contests in Canada until that point. Um, so they have a lot of big competitors. It's actually interesting that uh, GBR gets this big unanimous win because they're a local firm. Mm-hmm. Um, except the design they propose is for a different location. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, so Paige and Rebecca talked a bit about the um, location debacle. <laughs> Well, I'll give you, so I did pull these bullet points. Let me just see here. Because I knew that I would never remember these off, off the top of my head. <laughs> and I don't have the dates here, but we know roughly that time yeah. frame. Uh, it was long, of course. Um, so citizens vote uh, for it to be either the main street site, which is which um, would be more or less where it is now, or Broadway near the ledge. Over 60% of the city votes uh, for the Broadway site. Uh, Duff Roblin, premier at the time, pushes to have it in Point Douglas oh. as part yeah, as part of a bigger sort of uh, redevelopment of Point Douglas that he's considering. Um, then the city, uh, then we have that Metropolitan Planning Commission, uh, and they recommend the King Street site, but I don't know where on King, and I don't imagine it's too, too far from where where it is now, but just you know, probably more like uh, public safety yeah. kind of mm-hmm. area. Um, then Duff Roblin makes a play for the Main Street site. Then City Council approves the Broadway site and announces the plan. That's it. We're doing it. Then City Council hires John Russell, who is the um, the fellow that uh, the Russell Building at the University of Manitoba is named after. Um, he examines seven different sites and none of them included the main street site. And <laughs> <laughs> the one he recommends is the St. Paul's college site. So this is the one that's over by Ellis and uh, Belmoral or something. Oh yeah. Down there. Yeah. Very different location. <laughs> totally wild. And then uh, city council rejects that recommendation and approves the main street site. I mean, it's a classic Winnipeg style to do something. We're like, we're gonna do a vote. You vote on this, okay? Never mind. We're not doing that. We're gonna we're gonna go somewhere new. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> so the design that Green, uh, Green Blankstein and Russell proposes is this for the Broadway site. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's like, um... <sighs> okay. Do you know when sometimes you buy like an exotic fruit and it comes wrapped? In that kind of, like, paper with the holes in it? Yeah. To cushion okay. it? That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, so it's two buildings. Um, one would be the city, like, council chamber, and one would be the admin building. The admin building looks a bit like the admin building at present-day City Hall, but the council chambers is this big kind of, like, wavy, yeah. long that structure. That one looks like corrugated cardboard. Yeah, a little bit. I see yeah. it, yeah. Or, like, part of corrugated, yeah. Yeah, like the inside bit of the corrugated yeah. cardboard. 
So this design does not fit for the Main Street site. Ah, okay. So they've won the contest. They have to redesign the building. Um, like a site on Broadway kind of makes sense, right? So it'd be near the ledge, near the law courts. Yeah. Be sort of, that would be sort of a civic area, I suppose. Yeah. So part of the reason that it goes back to Main Street is that Duff Roblin had just announced support for a new civic arts center on Main Street. Okay. So they want to keep City Hall near that site. So mm-hmm. um, Bernard Brown and David Thornton from uh, Green Blankstein and Russell create a second plan. Um, and it's this two building structure that we have now. And it is two buildings, a city council chamber, which is a little lower. It has these like iron screens basically covering the council chamber windows. It's meant to provide shade. I don't know how well that actually works. Okay. And then across a plaza is a larger administration building that's supposed to hold city services. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge fountain in between the two initially. Oh. And, like, it looks cool in night photography. The photos they have of it from the 60s are, like, actually kind of stunning. Let's see if I can find a good one of it. Okay, wow. Yeah, that looks beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's just the admin building at night, but there's, like, a really big... Yeah. I mean, it looks a bit like a mall fountain. But I love a mall fountain. Yeah, right? But the reason it looks Remember like a mall fountain is this is when mall fountains actually worked. <laughs> yeah. But this is when mall fountains are being designed, or yeah. about to be, right? So this is the same, like, era it's coming out of. So yeah, a huge fountain in the middle, a big modernist building with a walkway in between. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the design that gets approved and goes through, but first they have to get rid of the old city hall. <laughs> right. It's still sitting there, and it's a smaller building. So the old city hall takes up a smaller chunk of land, and across from it were a series of small businesses that had, like, basically been shuttered for a while Mm. so they buy out those properties too and they basically close down their part of the street to make this bigger complex uh to kick off the demolition in 1962 steven juba throws a crowbar through a storefront window (laughs) be pretty fun it would be and then they had to try and find the old uh time capsule stored within city hall oh do you remember we talked a little bit that when the first cornerstone they placed it had a cricket in it Grasshopper, but yes. Grasshopper. Yes. I mean, close enough. (laughs) Um, The thing is, in 1962, no one knew which stone they'd put the time capsule in. Oh, no. So Juba and council invite the press, and they start combing over the building with a mine detector to try and find metal (laughs) in the stone. (laughs) Did they find it? Well, they did, because we know what's in it. Oh, right. We've seen it. (laughs) Um, So they find it. What the contents are in the city archives today, it is a... Grasshopper from when they plagued our like wheat <laughs> population. Um, some old wheat, old newspapers, old currency. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. So they remove all of that, and then demolition begins in nineteen. Our construction begins in 1963 once the building is leveled, and it takes about a year to complete. It's yeah, a pretty modern design. It's block like, it's boxy. It looks like you'd expect a modernist building to look yeah. like, but it's clad in uh, Tindlestone, which is that little right. unique Manitoban touch a lot of our buildings have. Yeah. Do you want to explain what Tindlestone is? I don't know that geologically. Yes. I think I can do that. <laughs> I can't believe you don't remember anything about rocks. It's a kind of stone that's got fossils in it. It's a type of limestone found in Garson, Manitoba that has fossils in it from back when we were a large glacial lake. Yep. So it dates back like thousands of years. And when it's yeah polished smooth like it often is for cladding on buildings, like at a city hall or at the ledge, you can find fossils. Uh, I... I, I was going to say I used to love doing that, but I still kind of love doing that. It's fun to do that. If you go to any of these buildings, take a look around. It's neat. Mm-hmm. And at City Hall, there's these big glass windows and glass walls, especially in the council building, to give the appearance of transparency. 
that okay. did not exist within Juba's administration. Ah, interesting. <laughs> um, 62,000 glass blocks were used. That's very Soviet <laughs> to be like, here is the, the window, no. <laughs> right. but we will not tell you anything. And um, there is a planned walkway to connect City Hall to a parkade, the Art Center, and then what will become the Public Safety Building and the like staff parkade mm-hmm. in a couple of years' time. Uh, it opens in 64 to a lot of fanfare. Juba's pretty excited about a new modern workplace. He had been joking that he was taking life insurance policies out at the old <laughs> office. Um, in following the demolition and construction, uh, the Winnipeg Free Press writes, compared to the ancient, crumbling, nasty old gingerbread si- structure that was the old city hall, who can complain? All right. Uh, people did. Oh. <laughs> people still do. Yeah. I did tours downtown, and what I would often hear is like, oh, why'd they tear down that old city hall? Yes. And replace it with this ugly thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you guys like the new city hall? Yeah. Yeah? Nick's neutral. <laughs> <laughs> We got a shrug. I like it. Yeah. I think it's fine. I like the council building. I've been in both the council and the admin buildings. So I haven't spent a ton of time inside of them, I should say. I've spent um, a couple of hours sitting in the council chambers. Yes, I've been, in the, ca- I've been in the council chambers. <laughs> We're very cool adults. The inside is very dated. It yeah. feels like the 80s died in there. Oh, no. Oh, see, and I find that kind of charming. <laughs> yes, usually that is charming and very Winnipeg, but this is a, like, <laughs> like, I remember, like, my, my dad used to own a car dealership, Landau Ford Lincoln, which is now Capital Ford. And it had the greatest, like, 70s aesthetic into the 90s, and then they renovated. But there's one office, like, up above in, like, the old upstairs that never got touched. It was my grandpa's old office. And it just, it, like, it seeped, like, great 70s, 80s Winnipeg. <laughs> and, like, from the art on the wall to, yeah. like, the wood paneling and just, like, the bad carpet. And it was just like, <laughs> yeah, like, this is what... Like bad, and then like the city hall is just like <laughs> we're good Winnipeg, and it's just like oh this wasn't cool in the eighties and it's not cool now. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the vibe I get from it. But anyways, to each their own. Yeah, that's just me. Um. Yeah. No, I haven't spent enough time inside to have to have that firm of an opinion. But no, I, from the outside, it's yeah, it's alright. I like I, I like the concert hall more than I like city hall. I would say between the two. Yeah. But no, I like it. Okay. That's totally yeah. That's a normal opinion <laughs> <Yeah>. to have. <laughs> So uh, Paige and Rebecca did like it. Oh. So I asked them why, because I've heard a lot of complaints about it over the years. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. I, I'm kind of nostalgic for for the, the uh, time when it was built. You know, I, I, I can't escape that nostalgia, especially when we're doing a little bit of research for our episodes and I'm reading about these architectural firms who were... Um, who were very young, like like new grads, who were doing uh, projects that were going to affect Winnipeg for the for the next hundred years, you know, or more. Um, and um, there's a lot there's there's something in that that is kind of bigger than the architect themselves. So it it and <clears throat> I think that's true of any building that we design, but uh, particularly when I look at these these projects, I'm just um, you know, I, I want, I wish I could have been a part of it. And so um, it it's, it's the timing. And then I'm also just, I'm just hopelessly love um, the style of architecture. Mm-hmm. I do find the, uh, you know, and, and, and it's for a lot of the reasons why people dislike it, like those hulking forms um, in 
just a, a really solid type of material. We just don't see architecture like that nowadays. Um, probably has a lot to do with the fact that people don't like it. <laughs> um, but an another reason why I really like it is because I like architecture that makes people talk. And that doesn't necessarily mean I have to like the style. Um, I just like when people are talking because um, usually they are only talking about it when they're passionate, whether they, it's because they love it or they hate it. And, um, I, you know, I think there's there's things you can learn when you hear people talk about what it is they love and hate mm -hmm. um, about different buildings. So I think that's what really draws me to it. Um, yeah. hmm. oh, I got the chance to uh, I got the chance to visit City Hall probably the late 70s maybe early 80s but probably late 70s uh when Mayor Bill Norrie was in office and so we got a tour of City Hall we got to sit at his desk and then coming back to it all those years later it hadn't changed at all it was exactly the same it was just as big and impressive as it was to me when I was very little and usually when you're little and you see a space and it seems huge you go back to it as an adult it doesn't seem as big or as impressive and that wasn't the case with city hall for me and i think specifically the um the council building there's something about it that reminds me of the old airport especially oh. when you're on the oh, second yeah. floor there's just that big open space and that you know mid-century vibe and the old airport was one of my favorites when i was a kid too so i think there's a bit of nostalgia for me in just these like very grown-up spaces that I can appreciate. <laughs> Plus, you know, when we go and go to different cities, I'm always looking for mid-century buildings. So it's nice to have some in the city that I can that I can look at. We have some call nice your ones own. in the city too. Yeah. So, like, there's there's stuff to like about it too, and I do agree that like modernism is fun to talk about. Especially, mm -hmm. it was one of my favorite talking points on tours because, like. Either way, you get someone saying something kind of interesting, That's right? That's true. And so City Hall, the new one that we have, is part of a much broader plan for the area. We talked about that civic arts complex mm -hmm. that's on the horizon. But the big plan, which would have taken many years, was basically the ultimate destruction of the entire exchange district. Uh-oh. <laughs> which is wild to think about. Yeah. The project doesn't get that far. So we get like some nice new buildings, and then we find interesting uses for some old ones. But when we're getting into, like, the 60s, we start seeing more pushes to save old buildings. Mm -hmm. um, this is also largely younger advocates as well. So in the case of the Central Fire Hall, which would have been sort of by Albert and King Street, that's being torn down because it's old and decrepit and we don't use fire halls like that anymore. Um, the plan was to sell it to, like, a developer or something, and it, realistically it would have become a parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> but students go to Juba's office berate him to the point where he goes we'll make it into a park temporarily wow and that temporary park is old market square today oh cool <laughs> well good for them so it works and that square is so nice to have there right it's yeah i can't imagine the exchange district without it but of course i've only known the exchange well, with that's that true. right but yeah i think it's so valuable that we have a little gathering space yeah and it's become very much the heart of that neighborhood yeah so and the fact that it's like tucked away behind behind the buildings is really yeah. nice, right? You're not right on the street. Exactly. So it's a, it's a little quieter yeah. sometimes. 
So yeah, it's an interesting push and pull between like preserving and saving or tearing down and building anew. Mm-hmm. And the new stuff we get is really interesting too. Like, I think what we lose is when we talk about like, I can't believe they tore down this and that is we start to overlook the stuff we built in the mid-century period. Yeah. Um, we only have one nationally designated modernist building in the city. Okay. It's MTC, ah. the Manitoba Theater Center. Cool. Um, so what we get is the Manitoba Centennial Corporation coming out of the Civic Arts Complex plan. It's sort of spearheaded by Duff Roblin. And the plan is to make a huge urban center mm-hmm. of like arts in the city. They debut their plans in Eaton's in 1964. You can actually see the model of that today in the basement of the concert hall. Oh, uh, yeah. It's still there. But in it, you can see the uh, Centennial Concert Hall, the Manitoba Museum, and Planetarium, and just down the road, uh, the Manitoba Theater Center. Cool. And then also, like, a marina along the water and all of the old buildings gone. It's a strange thing to look at and try and imagine how the neighborhood would look. Right. So we did some of that. Yeah. But it's some, like, amazing amount of architects working on this. Um, Mm. For uh, the project, we have uh, Green, Blankstein, and Russell with Moody Moore, um, Wenham and Partner Smith, Carl... Carter Seal and Associates for the Concert Hall, uh, Herbert Henry Gattenby Moody for the museum, and then Robert Kirby for MTC. It is, like, a lot of architects working together to design a, like, semi-cohesive space with, like, it's they're all distinctive in their own yeah. way. That would be a really exciting kind of time to be in. Right. To be like, hey, we're, like, designing the new face for our city. Exactly. And, like, all of these arts organizations, many of them are still, like, 20 years old. They're still young. Mm-hmm. And they're getting these, like, spaces built for them. The museum had been, like, fairly disparate in, like, private collections. Yeah. They get a building. There's a planetarium. The symphony had been playing out of the auditorium. The ballet at the Pantages. They now have this big, dedicated space. Yeah. It's it's so interesting that so many of our arts organizations get homes in this, yeah. in this period. I and mean, imagine if we didn't have a museum. It's weird to think about, right? And, like... Those buildings are pretty formative for, I would say, a lot of, like, Winnipeggers. I didn't even grow up in the city, but, like, I did field trips in the museum. Mm -hmm. In high school, I went to MTC through a, like, high school program we had. We do big field trips once a month. Yeah. And then, like, in university, I go to the symphony when one of my old profs had tickets he didn't want. They would give them to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, these are buildings I went to a lot, and I would say were fairly, like, formative for me. Yeah, absolutely. And then, obviously, we've both, like, worked in and around them for a while, too. Yes, that too. But then, um, once we build all of these lovely new arts buildings, we run out of money by the 70s. Ah. So the development uh, stops. Mm-hmm. But what comes out of that then is a new development plan for the Exchange District, the, I think, downtown redevelopment plan. Okay. And that starts with the redevelopment of art space into, from a warehouse into art galleries with um, later a movie theater on the main floor, Cinematheque. Cool. So it, like, what comes next is also really interesting and exciting, and it's probably a different episode in and of itself, because Juba has less of a hand in that. Mm-hmm. But he was always a big campaigner for modernizing the city and bringing stuff in. Yeah. And now that we have this, like, big cultural center that takes, like, over a decade to develop, MTC opens in 1971. Okay. So it takes a while between City Hall and that. Um, we also get the Pan Am Games. Oh, yeah. Which Juba would talk about probably as being one of his biggest accomplishments, hmm. is getting that to come to Winnipeg. Yeah. Uh, the Pan Am Games are this, like, pan-American games. They take athletes from North America, South America, and Central America, and they come in, uh, compete in, like, it's like the Olympics, but more regional. Sure. <laughs> um, Juba learns about them from a Chicago mayor in the 50s, and then starts campaigning for them to come to Winnipeg as early as 1959. He wanted them to come for their 63 games, but they go to Brazil. Okay. So Juba goes to the South American delegates and is like, we're going to host it next year. You have to let us host it. Hmm. 
and he convinces them to come to Winnipeg. And then Juba goes to the feds and to the province to say, you need to pay up two-thirds of the amount of this coming to Canada. Oh, because, like, they're already coming. <laughs> they're already coming. You need to pay for this. And then he takes their promise for funding to city council and say, we have backing for two-thirds of the cost. We just have to cover a third of it. I mean, it's brilliant. What can I say? <laughs> right? Ten out of ten ploy. Yeah. We get them to agree, and then we backtrack everything else. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the first time the game's ever held in Canada. It's the first time a sporting event like that is held in Canada. It brings oh, out, wow. like, a lot of people. Um, we build... We build new stuff for it. There's 17 venues used. So, like, the Winnipeg Stadium is used for the opening ceremonies. Uh, the Pan Am Stadium by the U of M is used as the track and field center. The Pan Am Pool is built for it. Oh. And opens, like, months beforehand. I can't believe I never put that together. <laughs> Alex! I know. I mean, Pan Am didn't mean no. anything to me when no. I was going there as a kid. I don't I know. I think it opened meant. days beforehand, actually. Like, it was not long before it started that the Pan Am Pool was built. Wow. Don't forget the velodrome. Yeah, that was the next one I was going to say. Yeah. What's the velodrome, Nick? Um, it was for bikes. <laughs> and there's a band called Velodrome from Winnipeg. That's ah. probably not around anymore, but that's really why I know them. <laughs> that's so, why you know what that is? Yeah. I think the velodrome's kind of a niche one to know. Yeah, but I don't know. I've seen like photos of it and yeah. stuff. And it just, it... That makes sense. Velo is bike in French. Yeah. So yeah, it's the uh, cycling center, essentially. And then uh, the Royal Alexander Hotel was the press center. Oh. Um. So yeah, it brings in a lot of people. It's a big deal. And there's these big opening ceremonies at the stadium. And to carry the torch, obviously they're not going to carry it from Brazil up to here. So they start in St. Paul, nope. Minnesota. <laughs> that would be, that would be incredible. Yeah. They should do that. <laughs> but what they do instead is they find a 10 indigenous boys from like reserves across Manitoba. Um, Charlie Nelson, David Corshane Jr., Patrick Briere, Charles Bittern, William Chippeway, Fred Harper, William Maristy, Russell Abraham, John Nazi, and Milton Mallet. They're picked out because they're all, like, pretty talented athletes in their school, and they get to take this trip to St. Paul, Minnesota. They stay oh, in fun. hotels, and they have to carry the torch from there up to Winnipeg, like, running in shifts. And they make this 800-mile journey. Wow. They get to the stadium, and they are stopped. And the torch is given to a white athlete to carry the rest of the way, and the boys have to watch the ceremony from a nearby pancake house. They're not even allowed they're not in. not even allowed in the stadium. They can't even watch the ceremony. That's awful. And... CBC does a really good documentary about them called The Front Runners, which I recommend you watch because mm -hmm. they talk to many of them when they're older and they'll talk about saying like, well, we didn't think it was odd at first. Right. Because that's just kind of the state of how things were in the city mm -hmm. and in Canada at the time. But like in hindsight, you can tell that really hurt. Yeah. And obviously it would. Like they carried the bulk of the way and they don't get any of the recognition for it. Yeah. So some of them get to uh, light a torch in the 1999 Pan Am Games. Mm-hmm. So some of them get to come back later. Not all of them lived that long, unfortunately. I feel like there's a metaphor here somewhere about, like, the exploitation of indigenous lands and people who are putting a white face on it. it. I mean, yeah, very much so. And it's still, like, Winnipeg is not a city that's friendly to indigenous people in a lot of ways. Like, mm -hmm. we plan this big event and then we don't let them in. Yeah. So that's still, like, going on in the midst of all of this, like, really big stuff. Um, Also, like... We get a lot of big people coming in for this. Prince Charles comes hmm. to the Pan Am Games. There's videos of him standing in a raincoat in the middle of the stadium <laughs> watching the ceremonies. Um, there's athletes from 29 nations across the Americas, as well as the Caribbean. In uh, 21 sporting events, um, Canada wins 11 gold, 36 silver, and 43 bronze medals. Cool. So, like, it's a pretty big tourism event, and it does kind of put Winnipeg on a much bigger map than it had been before. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, what Juba's probably best at, is these big, like, publicity stunts. He's able to pay attention to Winnipeg. Right. He's a little less great at, like, working with people. <laughs> okay. 
So like the day to day stuff. The day to day stuff and some of some of the other things going on in Winnipeg are a little trickier to navigate. Mm-hmm. So City Hall is obviously the big one of the bigger crises is that like we need a new building. It's too small. Um, but also the fact is that Winnipeg is just too big. Yeah. So when Juba runs for mayor in 1956, one of his promises is that he wants to amalgamate city services or basically amalgamate the city. Mm-hmm. So he wants to take the greater Winnipeg area and just make it Winnipeg. Make it one, one. great city. Oh. <laughs> so actually the plan when it comes about is called one big city. Oh, <laughs> that's not as good. No, it's not. Um, so there's like 13 municipalities surrounding the city and it's difficult to manage. So they established the Metropolitan Exploratory Committee in 1955. It's got commissioners with uh, George Sharp, the uh, St. Boniface mayor, uh, J.G. Bellingham, the St. James mayor, um, and then a West Kildonan cance- uh, counselor. And uh, Richard Bonnie Castle gets involved in a little bit. We'll talk about him shortly. But he is the founder of Harlequin Romance. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I've forgotten about him. He's just also involved in this. All right. His wife is busy running Harlequin Romance. <laughs> um, and... This would grow into the Metropolitan Corporation in 61, which uh, Premier Douglas Campbell implements. And this group is responsible for planning roads, bridge crossings, park developments, property assessment, like public services, like transit. It's under them that we get the convention center and the transit numbering system we still use. Okay. So um, the routes and numbers were completed weeks before the start of the Pan Am Games. (laughs) Um, But the Met Corporation is not super popular it's pretty unwieldy okay and it's difficult to figure out who was in charge of what so there's a really fuzzy line between like do you go to the city of winnipeg do you go to the city of saint boniface do you go to the met corporation okay that does sound confusing yeah so um capital financing wasn't centralized so there's no way to fund like citywide priorities okay it's all based in their municipalities so funding of schools is based on the district ah so like it's based on the tax bases of each community. Mm-hmm. And then there's a concern that Winnipeg's urban core is providing, you know, offices now. It's providing these, like, arts opportunities. But the tax money is going into, say, Kildonan and not into Winnipeg Center where people are going to, like, work and play. Sure. Which is still the concern we're going to hear about today. Oh, yeah. Like, with right, with people who live in kind of nearby kind of commuter towns. Yeah. Yeah, like bedroom communities, as we call mm-hmm. them now. Yeah. So there's also a uh, increased concern about like poverty and social ills, and not a lot of idea on like what to do about it. And it's hard to standardize a response. Like even with a three-digit emergency number, you still don't know who to go to for any of this thing. Mm-hmm. And there is a staggering amount of people involved in running this thing. Okay. So like, we have the Metropolitan Corporation and then various civic governments. There are 13 municipalities, 10 school divisions, 112 councillors, aldermen, mayors, reeves, and 85 school trustees. <laughs> wow. That is 197 elected representatives for a population of around 550,000. Jeez. It's too many. That is too many. Just flat out, it is too many. So it's not working. And like to try and get any kind of consensus from that many people. Impossible. Yeah. And then like if you're talking about like a hospital in one neighborhood that everyone uses but right yeah then that community is like well why are we financing it solely well you know yeah exactly um lloyd axworthy sums it up really well he was working or writing for the uh journal of urban studies it had a lot of great stuff about like city planning around this time Mm -hmm. he says while the city was slowly sinking the people at the control spent too much time arguing over whose hand should be on the wheel oh yeah uh axworthy is also arguing that um 
the expansion of the city had been done without any real thought towards like city planning. There's increased poverty in the urban core because there's not as much money going into things. And people are forgetting the human dimension of city life. So they're building parking lots and office towers and mm-hmm. not the things that make a space like friendly. Yeah. So like parks in those public spaces that people can go to, not just folks that can go to over that, that uh, not just spaces people can access that they make over $10,000 a year. Which is the wording he used. Ten thousand dollars a year is not much these days. No, but uh, at the time, I mean, that's still such a frustration for me. You know, when I lived downtown, I really felt that people had forgotten that anyone lives there. Yeah, right. You know, it, like everything sort of closes at four p.m. because it's all sort of catered to people who work downtown or come downtown for events. Exactly. Yeah. So it's still a thing we're like dealing with today. But... Yeah. It was maybe even even a little bit worse. Or well, can we you were imagine... starting on that track, I suppose. Yeah. Can you imagine how confusing it would have been, though, if, like, you didn't know who to talk to about any single issue? Yeah, that's true. Because, like, if your roads were bad, you would talk to the Metropolitan Corporation, okay. not the city. Huh. Um, and Juba hates the Metropolitan Corporation. Okay. So much. Yeah. Um, a Tribune bio describes it as a continuous, almost psychopathic hostility to the Metropolitan Corporation. <laughs> he, like, spends years campaigning against it. He doesn't like anyone that works for it. Anyone that supports it is kind of like an enemy to him. <laughs> okay. He's kind of, like, vindictive sometimes yeah. in how he handles some of this stuff. So, like, he goes to a city convention in North Dakota and then slams the Metropolitan Corporation there and they get mad at him for making the city look stupid. This seems, like, way too, like, boring of an organization to make your nemesis. <laughs> but, oh, man, he... It is. <laughs> it's his big nemesis. Um, he manages to, like, find ways to slander them constantly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't... Like, the beef sessions he pitched don't happen often, but he will occasionally, like, say, like, okay, people can come and complain to us or, like, present their concerns. And they're talking about having one of these meetings in 1961 when they learned that there's about, like, 400 people coming to talk to council about their grievances. Mm -hmm. And there are some concerns that maybe the balcony at City Hall can't support that many people. So, because the Metropolitan Corporation is in charge of civic works and buildings, Juba calls them and is like, you're in charge of buildings, what do we do? And their poor admin guy's like, well, the Pantages Theater is across the street, you could do that. And he goes, it's short notice, we can't do the Pantages like, can we do it here or not? And the guy goes like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So what Juba does is he's like, well, I guess I'll have to turn people away. And they turn about 300 people away and Juba blames the Met Corporation for having to do that. Oh no. And then later on, he's like, we probably could have used the Pantages. Yeah. It sounds like maybe he was looking for a problem there. <laughs> he was. Yeah. He was looking for a problem and he started one. Yeah. He was very good at it. Um, he also starts working with a city alderman that he did not like. Okay. He'd had a nemesis on council. He had a lot of nemeses on council <laughs> over the years. But they teamed up briefly to fight against the Metropolitan Corporation. And then the reporter's like, we thought you hated each other. Yeah. Like, there's a, there's a council meeting where the alderman supports Juba and everyone stops. <laughs> and he's like, what? You've never done this before? Uh, the enemy of my enemy, my enemy is, is my, my friend. friend. Yes. And then in 1962, uh, Juba starts a televised debate between himself and the Metropolitan uh, Chairman Richard Bonnycastle, okay. that Harlequin romance founder. Um, it's Aaron. And he rips off his shirt. And no, that's a different. I mean, we're not quite in the bodice ripper area yet, <laughs> and I don't know if we'd want to see Richard Bonnycastle shirtless on CBC <laughs> during a debate. Speak for yourself. <laughs> it would be interesting. <laughs> um, so it's aired on CBC. It lasts an hour and 25 minutes. So okay. 
And it's just about if the Metropolitan Corporation should or should not exist. Uh, I mean, that would be stressful to have to just, like, debate for the existence of the thing that you chair. Yeah. Um, at this point, the corporation is only 18 months old. Oh, wow. So okay. Bonnie Castle's argument is, this is new. Mm-hmm. This stuff takes time. Okay. You don't seem super convinced by that. I just, I just don't... I don't know. I don't totally understand why they exist either. <laughs> yeah, like, hype, the reason it exists, I think, is to allow different municipalities to, like, retain their identity as individual communities. Yeah. And to promote those interests. But that I think it's fuzzy when those municipalities are using services from other areas and, like, working in the city. I guess, is it, so, is it a sort of in-between measure when they're like, okay, we don't want to fully amalgamate, but we need to have some way of... It's close to it. Cooperating? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's similar-ish. So, like, Juba's coming into this debate saying, we need to amalgamate. This is my, like, number one concern. Yeah. Um, apparently, during the debate, Juba kept saying that the Metropolitan Corporation was spending money like it was going out of style. Ah. That was his tagline the entire debate. But his main claims are, like, it is unwieldy. It causes problems. Uh, the chairman's not elected. They're, like, they're not voted in by the people. Hmm. Bonnie Castle didn't, like, win. Yeah. And then it's a waste of Winnipegger's money is okay. his main campaign. Um, before this debate, apparently Juba and Bonnie Castle had had some like friendly conversation. When it ended, they did not speak. Oh, wow. They left the rooms without <laughs> talking to each other. And then in 1968, the Metropolitan Corporation makes a statement about how Winnipeg's core area is dying. Mm-hmm. Juba fires back that it's very much alive. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, the person that makes the comment is uh, Earl Levin, who's like an administrator with the Met Corporation. And what he is proposing is high density housing in central areas, which I agree with. Yeah. I think it's a good plan. I think we still need it. Um, also grocery stores. That too. <laughs> Things you can access within a short distance. Yeah. <laughs> um, Juba is... I don't think he just. I don't think he likes that the Metropolitan Corporation is talking about Winnipeg. Mm. This is the thing where he's getting defensive about the city, right? Ah, gotcha. So he gets mad and says that like Levin isn't involved in policy, mm-hmm. so he shouldn't be proposing policy unless he wants to work as a counselor. Okay, Which I mean I d- that seems unfair. It is. It is like, unfair. He can't have an opinion. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lot of what Juba does is realistically unfair. Yeah. So, eventually, though, it is agreed that. Whatever this is, is not working. And the mm-hmm. province makes these, like, white paper documents with some proposals for what you could do okay. to deal with the, with the overhaul or with the Metropolitan Corporation. So some of their ideas are disband the Metropolitan Corporation and go back to the pre-1960 situation. Mm-hmm. No one wants this. You're right. <laughs> uh, keep trucking along slowly or just modify the corporation. Total amalgamation, mm-hmm. which would include stuff like annexing all municipalities to Winnipeg, amalgamating with the Metropolitan Corporation. Oh, okay. Dissolve all municipalities and give all power to the Metropolitan Corporation. Which has an unelected chair. (laughs) Uh, Create two cities on either side of the Red River. Oh, that's interesting. Isn't it? Huh. That one was fascinating to me. Yeah. I'm like, you know, you know, we have bridge technology now. (laughs) We do. Actually, uh, Juba helped uh, spearhead the Disraeli Bridge. Oh. Um. Ultimately, the commission recommends a two-tier structure that creates nine cities. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's not much better. So the cities are Winnipeg, excepting Elmwood. Okay. St. James's in Aboya, Tuxedo, Charleswood, Old Kildonan, and West Kildonan, Fort Gary, St. Patel, St. Boniface, North Kildonan, and then Elmwood, and then Transcona. Okay. So nine cities. So we've gone from 13 to nine. I don't feel like that's functionally going to make a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, but they're cities and not municipalities uh. now. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 
obviously, because we live in 2023. This isn't what happened. Yeah. I mean, I can see how, like, there's there's not a, an answer here that's going to make everyone happy. No. And, like, I mean, we or live... That, or that ha- is the perfect answer, right? No. And, I mean, we also live in a city that's been... We've gone through this already. Like, we've yes. gone through amalgamation. I can't imagine a Winnipeg that's not that. No, and I don't, like, I don't know. Do you think that there are people still in, muni- in like, those old municipalities who are like, wish we hadn't? I mean, probably. There's got to be, right? There's got to be a handful of yeah. them, right? Um, so, in 1972, after years of pushing, uh, Premier Schreier introduces Unicity. Mm-hmm. This replaces the municipal governments and uh, completely dissolves the Met Corporation. So Unicity is actually a really unique form of government at the time. We are one of the first Canadian cities to try it. Okay. So, like, it's a big deal, and no one really knows how it's going to work, how it's going to look, but basically we're amalgamating everyone together into one big city. Yeah. Functionally. Um, There's early talk in this about having the mayor elected from council. Okay. So not by public vote, but having, like, whoever's on the council pick a guy. Uh, Juba didn't like this very much. I don't think people would like that very much. No, but also none of the counselors like Juba. No, okay, I see. <laughs> They're just trying to look for ways to not have Juba. <laughs> but Juba did also say he would be willing to give up political life if it would get Unicity. Hmm. Like, he was so willing he to was, lose this on was, this. This was really his his yeah. thing. It was. Um, there's still a lot of debates about how, like, Unicity will work, even in the months, like, leading up to it being implemented. So throughout, like, 70, 71 into 72... And multiple counselors stay on the record that they think Juba will ruin his career over this. Hmm. They think he, well, they say things like, reach the end of his rope or they'll hurt himself. They're using fairly violent terminology about this, but (laughs) it's not politically popular exactly. The counselors all seem to be kind of iffy on it, but Juba pushes along and then it does actually get implemented in 1972. So in January, Winnipeg becomes a much, much bigger city Mm -hmm. than it ever was before. Um, in the early days, we had a lot of counselors. Oh, I guess. Well, yeah. How does it work with all of the previous mayors and council members? We have 50 city counselors. Okay. <laughs> um, Winnipeg is split up into a number of wards. Each ward gets two counselors. Mm-hmm. You can see why this might cause some problems. Yeah. Um, so it's huge. And they and start- c- city council is too small. Yeah. Like the, the building. Right, yeah. So they start establishing standing committees. And mm. we do still have these today. So basically the goal is that, like, standing committees are established to research and propose policy choices to council who will then vote on them. So council shouldn't be hypothetically involved in the research side of things. If you want to talk about a policy, you go to your standing committee. Okay. And we do have these still today. So you'll talk to, like, um, the executive policy committee or a standing committee on, like, uh, property and development. Mm-hmm. Um, they also start establishing uh, community committees to make sure everyone is heard. There are, like, two fundamental principles behind this. Uh, they want to unify social services, establish a system of community committees to let people feel involved in the government process. And then their lofty goals aren't totally met. People don't really understand how it works or how to get involved, which is right. still a thing today. There's still community committees you can join. I had no idea. Yeah. So. Um, Winnipeg has 50 wards established, broken up throughout all of our municipalities. <laughs> I don't know how many we have today, but I think it's, like, 12. Yeah. <laughs> We've cut that down a lot. Um, so, yeah, the way it works is there is council with its 50 members. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand why they did that. Because, like, if you were previously living in a municipality where you were, like, oh, I had my own alderman who, like, was only covering these, like, four blocks of our right, tiny yeah. municipality. 
it would be pretty upsetting to be like, no, there's only like one for St. Boniface now. Totally, yeah. So like it makes sense why this happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we have the council and then underneath them is an executive policy committee. Then there's um, a finance environment and uh, works and operations, which we think of as like public works today. Mm-hmm. Under the standing com- are the policy committees are commissioners who will supervise city departments. So they're the ones that like look after the workers. And there's admin officers and there's community committees. Okay. Community committees we don't really have as much in the way these ones work. There are um, 13 of them for different neighborhoods across the city. They're supposed to prepare budgets, meet, and then hold community conferences to talk about like what's going on in our neighborhood and what does the city need to know about. Okay. I actually like the idea a lot. I thought you said there were still community committees. But they're more on like specific things, like a library committee. Okay. So like we've switched it from like these are like... If we lived near, like, Transcona, there would be a Transcona Community Committee. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, like, I can be on a community board for library services. Okay. That's the distinction. Um, I like the idea of having ones for neighborhoods to, like, prepare budgets for what your community needs. Yeah. The issue is that um, people didn't really know how it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, people weren't going to these meetings. Sure. And no one really knew how to make a city budget. Because yeah. these are just, like, people. <laughs> sure. Um. There's this big inaugural meeting for all of this. Like, all of this stuff they know is going to be a problem, too. Like, Mm -hmm. I think everyone is aware there's kinks to be worked out and no one knows how it's going to play out. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty big mystery. So Juba delivers this big speech at the uh, inaugural meeting on January 4th, 1972. And he ends the speech with, Only the future can tell us how well we'll meet these challenges and develop these opportunities. The rewards are great in terms of meeting citizen expectations and improving the environment of the total community. If we have a successful beginning, who knows? But that, a spokesman for the next generation, may be well, may be well able to proclaim Winnipeg, as did St. Paul in his reference to Rome. I am a citizen of no mean city. Should this be the eventual verdict, we'll have done our job well. All right. It's a good closing speech. Yeah. And, yeah, that's kind of roughly where we'll end off here Mm -hmm. is winnipeg is now a big city it's one great city kind of there's a lot of kinks in the plan that are working out like people will agree in the future that unicity did not work out the way they wanted it to at all there's a lot of flaws yeah but we did stick i mean we stuck with the program we We did we're one we're one city now we are and we have less counselors yeah (laughs) (laughs) so many less counselors i I wonder if there was sort of a gradual whittling away That's one thing I would like to, like, look into down the yeah. road, but my knowledge of, like, city policy and management is not good enough yet mm-hmm. to do that. Oh, episode. you'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> one day I'll get... Honestly, probably. Yeah. Ugh. But, yeah, we're ending on this kind of, like, big precipice where Winnipeg is changing fairly radically. Mm-hmm. This is something that, like, North American cities haven't done before. So, I don't know. It's just that Winnipeg was in a place to take a risk like that. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think of Winnipeg as being a risk-taking city. No, I mean, I guess Juba seems like he was a risk-taker, though. Yeah. So, um, Juba doesn't get voted out here. Because mm-hmm. you're voted in by the public and not by council. So, Juba is mayor until 1977. So, he is around for a little while longer. Long yeah. enough to actually usher in one other event. Uh, Winnipeg's 100th anniversary. Ah. Our centennial happens in 1974. And... Juba obviously spearheads this big, like, centennial celebration event. It lasts a year. Okay, wow. There are races, concerts, parties. Juba and council dress up in 1870s costumes and reenact the first city council meeting. So, I'm just, it's, a, it's the 150th anniversary. Yeah. Where are the races? I mean, we'll be celebrating it, I think, for everyone else next year in 2024, but... Because they felt like it. Yeah. Um... Do you think there are going to be races and costumes next year? I'd be surprised. Yeah. I would love it if they did. Um, there is a huge cake outside of City Hall. Someone oh. builds a City Hall out of, like, icing sugar. 
Um, and then the first folk fest happens as part of this. Oh. The first folk fest is held in Birdsell Provincial Park in 1974. That's so fun. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, also during his term, we got Folklorama. It's like a bunch of these like big Winnipeg festivals come out of this time period. Right. I mean, a lot of the things that I think of as being sort of definitive of Winnipeg seem to come out of totally, this yeah. Era. Which is really interesting. Um, but I thought I would have some honorable mentions for like other Juba ideas that came up in my research because they were very funny. Because we haven't heard too many crazy ideas yet. These are mostly like workable ideas. These are the ones heard. that uh, people like did. Yeah. And he proved to be right about. Um, one of his ideas was to use incinerators to melt snow in the winter to help clear roads. <laughs> You could um, recover gravel from the snow clearing, and your roads would stay clean. Great. Love it. Um, A city engineer called the idea wacky. Yeah. I mean, he's correct. Um, Dome over the downtown of Winnipeg. Yes. Love it. Crosswalk over Portage and Main. No. Let's have the crosswalk on Portage and Main, please. Weirdly, this comment happens before Portage and Main is closed to the public. There oh, is an open crosswalk, and he thinks, what oh, if we he build wants over? A skywalk as well. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. No, he does actually. He talks about skywalks a few times. Yeah. Uh, he pitches a monorail at one point. Yeah. So it's also under Juba's administration that we get the closure of Portage and Main. Okay. Because he builds like the Trizac building. And that's all. that is that is a different episode okay. that we do not have time for. <laughs> um, he gets into a prolonged fight about coloring margarine that almost leads to a full-on altercation at the legislature. Oh my god, I remember my dad telling me that when he was a kid, margarine came with like a little packet of yellow dye so that you could color it to look yellow. Yeah. Because they weren't allowed to sell it that color. Yeah. Yeah. He wants colored margarine. Okay. So there's almost a full-on fight about this at well. one point. Um. It's because of the dairy farmers, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I didn't look into it, maybe. All comes back to milk, Sabrina. <laughs> the next episode is going to be margarine. <laughs> yeah. Um, at a Grey Cup party, he arrives late with a tiger cub on a leash. I've seen the picture of him with the tiger cub. It's an, The tiger cub was, like, from the zoo, and somehow he had, like, gotten it on loan to bring to a party. like a naming contest or something? I think so. I don't know. Regardless, he shows up to a party with a tiger. He misses a big political meeting because he's judging a dog show. And then claims he was never invited to the party. Or to the, like, to the meeting. meeting. And he was too busy looking at dogs. Um, he's hospitalized in 1960. And then still does his work, but out of, like, his hospital room. He, like, hurt his leg and had an ulcer. Mm-hmm. And so reporters will come in and be like, what are you thinking about, Mayor Juba? And then he'll be like, I was looking out my window. And I was thinking about the traffic lights. <laughs> and I sent you this one. Yes. Because his idea was portable traffic lights to move around from intersection to intersection. Not one of his best. No. Though, um, do you remember that story from like a year ago about all the tra- like the traffic yes. light construction? I feel like functionally we have portable traffic lights. We're doing something similar. Yeah. Nothing else. Um, that same article had the headlines. Oh, God. It was like, uh-oh, creamed junk again, says mayor. <laughs> Because he had been eating soup that he hated. So a chunk of the article is him being like, what kind of soup do you think they're giving me today? Creamed junk again. Creamed junk again. Um, In 1957, he has a canoe race with the mayor of Selkirk. Um, He falls off his horse training for a race at one point. He's trying to race against the mayor of, like, Fort Gary or something. (laughs) It's a lot of races with this guy. He loves... He just wants to be the fastest mayor. He really, really does. Um... During a fight about placing public washrooms at Memorial Park by the legislature, Juba builds and places an outhouse on the legislator grounds with the premier's name on it. Ah, uh, pretty good. Um, and then he had a public advisory committee that was secret and was just five random people that he had assembled. 
apparently like a lawyer, a housewife, a like young guy, like uh, he was trying to have like a diverse swath of people yeah, or something to like pitch ideas to, and it's like they never steered me wrong. <laughs> oh man, I want to know more about that. I would love to know who was on the committee or if the committee was real. <laughs> I think he just made it up. I don't know. I don't know with Juba. Yeah. So when he also leaves office, um, he does it in I don't, the most Juba way possible. He didn't want another guy to win. Mm-hmm. So he figured he would pretend to be running. And like Juba historically did not campaign for mayor. He would just kind of be like, I'm running again. One time he spent um, $5 because he bet against himself again. <laughs> he did it more than once. So he wouldn't campaign very hard. So, like, if he didn't do much, you wouldn't assume he wasn't running. You'd think, like, well, that's just Juba. He's not trying again. Right. So he pretends to run. And then the day the deadline is, comes to drop out, he walks up to City Hall at the last minute, formally drops out, and effectively presents another guy, f- prevents another guy from, like, entering. Oh, wow. Because he can't sign up to run. The deadline's over. Oh, wow. Interesting. And then he refuses to, he takes all of his documents home with him and refuses to give them back for a while. Oh, Juba. He does give them back. Okay. But, like, he holds on to them for a little bit. Yeah, you, I, you can't do that. Oh, but he wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> so I also asked um, Paige and Rebecca what their uh, favorite Juba anecdote was. Okay. I think one of the one of my favorite anecdotes, um, I guess, about Stephen Juba was at one point he had opened a paint store. I don't know if you've heard this oh, yeah. story. That's yeah. a good one. I don't know if he I know. Had, He had opened a paint store. It, but the way he handled his inventory was the unique part. A person would come in, they'd look through the color chips. They'd say, okay, I'd like, you know, three gallons of this parchment white. And he'd say, okay, let me get that from the back. He would go into the back room. He would leave the building through the back door, cross a set of train tracks to where the paint was made. <laughs> he'd basically buy it wholesale. <laughs> One can at a time, or two cans at a time, whatever the customer needed. Come back into the store, come back out of the the back room and present it to the customer as if he had just found it on the shelf. That is incredible. 10 out of 10. I mean, you would be waiting so So long. (laughs) Like, like, I feel like it would be long enough that you'd get to the point where you'd be like, should we leave or? Yeah. Then he'd come back all sweaty with the campaign. (laughs) Like, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, that is uh, Juba. Love him. <laughs> He's just, what a guy. Uh, like, very Winnipeg. Yeah, right? The perfect Winnipeg mayor, I think. He's just like, just a little weird. Just a little weird. Yeah, and I, like, I don't know, the changes in Winnipeg go. But goes like, strangely to... effective. Yeah, so here's the crazy thing. He does not have a lot of friends on council. He has a lot of enemies. Yeah. Um, he fights a lot with Joseph Zukin, who was the communist on city council after Jacob Penner. Nice. <laughs> and like, they don't really get along a mm-hmm. lot because obviously Juba's ideas tend to be a little more conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they talk to Zukin, he'd be like, I don't know anyone else could do what Juba's done. Yeah. Like, I don't like the guy, but yeah, who could have done this? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess we've got sort of the benefit of not having to hear eight weird ideas a week. We're just like, oh, he did like this and that. These three really effective things. But also often his ideas weren't popular when they started, right? Mm-hmm. Like Unicity wasn't popular. Yeah. 999 had some like logistical concerns. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for someone who can run with an idea, even if it's unpopular. insane. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like um, he has been called Winnipeg's best and worst mayor. Sure. I think both might be correct. I think, but like, yeah, like the impacts he's had in the city are I mean, some of them are very positive. Some of them are, like, really negative. Yeah. 
Because, like, I think Rooster Town happens during his time as mayor. Mm. Port Germain closes during his time as mayor. Yeah. And there is this kind of destruction of, like, the downtown core as a place where people live. Live. Right, yeah. And it becomes, I mean, it's part of this, like, push for the suburbs, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know if Juba was a big fan of, like, subsidizing them, but mm-hmm. they lived outside of the city and he wanted them to come in. But he didn't want them to live there necessarily. He wasn't funding housing all the time. Right. So, yeah, like, a lot of what we would think of as, like, Winnipeg's urban planning problems come from this time period, too. But yeah. I don't know. His reputation is so interesting because, like, he's a big proponent of car culture. He owned, like, a ludicrous amount of... He drove a ludicrous amount of Cadillacs. Oh, okay. He claimed to have driven over 25. Hmm. Why? I don't... He just liked Cadillacs. All right. But also, I think part of it is, like, he was this kid that grew up poor and then made a lot of money when he was an adult and was like, I can get a cool car. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might be where that comes from. Fair. So, yeah, I don't know. I just think his, like... His legacy is so interesting. It really is. And, like, I don't know. The like, one... I'm, I'm very grateful for... Sorry to interrupt. No, no, go for it. Like, I'm very grateful for, like, the Centennial Center and all those, like, arts places that we have downtown. Yeah. I don't know that other people would have had the sort of gumption to really push those through. No. Those were really expensive projects. They were. I mean, it helped that it was uh, a Centennial project for both Canada and Manitoba, yeah. so there was some funding. Some kicking. funding, yeah. But, like, yeah, I don't know. He did a lot. Some of it good, some of it bad. He's so interesting. He's yeah. so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't I don't have a firm opinion on him. I think he's interesting. I, I like him personally because I think his anecdotes are very fun. Yes. He's good for stories. That's Juba. But I do think we should maybe end this episode all the way back in 1972 because we end with St. Boniface becoming a part of Winnipeg yeah. officially. And um, there is one St. Boniface resident who is not happy about that. Oh, he's so angry. And we're going to learn all about that next week. I cannot wait. In two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. No, you have to get this done early. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we'll hear all about that next time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Paige and Rebecca at Made From What's Left. Uh, you can check them out at Made From Pod on uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. They're wherever you get podcasts. They're really fun. You can learn all kinds of neat things about the city. Cool. Uh, current stuff and not the old stuff we talk about. Nice. <laughs> and their episodes are shorter than ours. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for a little bit more bite-sized content. Uh-huh. Uh, if you want to check more of us out, we'll have some post-episode discussions up on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash one great history. Um, we'll be talking a bit about some of Juba's um, opponents over the years, Ooh. one of whom is related to Cornish, our first mayor. Oh, incredible. Thank you so much to the Winnipeg Foundation, their Centennial Institute grant for their support, uh, the Government of Manitoba's Heritage Grant, the Manitoba Historical Society, and the Free Press for their support of this project. It's helped so much through a very busy series for us. We've done, we've covered a lot of ground yes. in 13 episodes. <laughs> Uh, if you want to see pictures of this episode, uh, Juba with Tigers, the blueprint for City Hall, or any of the sources I use for the episode, you can check that out at uh, onegreathistory.wordpress.com. We're also on social media at One Great History on Facebook and Instagram, and Number One Great History on Twitter. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.